Well, good morning. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Wires crossed, autocorrect, yeah? Man, okay, so we're starting a new series this week, in case you didn't, didn't notice just by the bumper alone, but we're talking about how things can sometimes be clear as mud. Good. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. <clears throat> so we're jumping in this morning. We're going to start. We're back in the book of Acts. So go ahead, and if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts 15. If you have the extra spiritual version, ESV, page 923. The Bible in the seat back in front of you is also the extra spiritual version, so page 923. If you have a different version, talk to me after service. I'm just kidding. Halfway. Um, <clears throat> but we're talking about um, today we're going to be talking about the first real council, um, theologically, that, that we, in, in the book of Acts, where the church comes to a head of uh, almost like an ethnic um, tension that we've seen under the surface. It comes to a head a bit today, and we're going to be talking about um, something that we need to understand. I, I, I need to flesh this out now. Um, it's called theological triage. Have you heard of that before? Have you heard of theological before? Have you heard of triage before? Right? So triage is like there's, a, there's, an, there's an epidemic or something happens and a, and a group of people go to the ER or it's like your average Friday night and your kid has a flu, you have to take them to urgent care. And, and they do what's called a triage, right? So they assess the, the needs of the patient and then determine based on everyone in the, in the waiting room who is the most necessary, the first, like the primary person that needs to get back first that needs to be attended to primarily. Does that make sense? So in theology, in the world of theology, we have what we call theological triage. And so we have first tier, second tier, or third tier issues or theologies or beliefs or practices that we have to have fleshed out. And so like first tier, these are the most important things that you have to understand. If you get this wrong, you don't get Christianity. So the deity of Christ, the perfection of his life, the virgin birth, inerrancy of scripture. These are all things that if you miss this, you get this wrong, you get Christianity wrong. Does that make sense? So these are necessary components of salvation. Second tier issue are things that are still very important but not quite the word I would use is salvific. So they don't have to do necessarily with your salvation. So you can afford to have differing views on these things. So whereas first tier, these are very important. Second tier are things more like what we believe about baptism or potentially what we believe about communion. So Baptists have the word baptism in our name because we believe upon a confessional baptism. So we won't baptize you until you've confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and you give your life to him. Does that make sense? Are you Baptist? Some of you are like, I didn't know I was Baptist. Like, some, a lot of churches are Baptist, they just don't realize it. Um, but then we also have, you have like our brothers who are the Presbyterians, right? And so they believe in what you would call federal headship believing that the baptism is the sign of the new covenant, whereas circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. So they believe in, in paedo-baptism or infant baptism because they believe it's a sign of the covenant, so they would baptize an infant. Does that make sense? Also, whereas we believe in baptism by immersion because of the translation of baptizo, the Greek verb, they, they hold to just the transliteration baptism, baptizo, and so they would baptize by effusion. Does that make sense? Effusion is pouring. I'm sorry, I should have said that. So that's like a second-tier issue. Third-tier issue are really not that important. Um, we might just agree about something, and for some reason, that would keep us from, from fellowshipping together, whereas we still affirm that we're saved. So like color of the carpet, right? You laugh. Like, you've, 
<laughs> yeah, so uh, hopefully, hopefully we're past. Uh, like music, music is a little more central, right? So like style of music. Um, so like Saturday night, we do it differently here than we do, say, like this service, right? So you guys get a different style of music or sound volume, decibel level, than necessarily like next service will get as well. And so those are like third tier issues, things we can change that don't really change the, identify of the identity of the church that much. Does that make sense? I'm going to keep asking that just because you guys are more glazed than I am, and I have a ton of cold medicine in my body. Um, so, so hang with me, please. Um, but today in Acts 15, we're not looking at a third-tier issue. We're not looking at a second-tier issue. We're looking at a first-tier issue, something that's vital to our salvation. So let's go ahead and pray now that I've bored you to death with what I think is interesting, and then we'll go ahead and get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that ultimately, when it comes down to it, our relationship with you is and should always be a first-tier issue. And Lord, your relationship with us was such a first-tier issue that you were willing to send your son <coughs> to live a perfect life that we couldn't, to die a gruesome death that we deserved, and to raise from that death and victory over our sin, ultimately freeing us from the bondage of sin and death that we could live forever glorifying you and praising your name. So Father, I pray that this morning would be a time where we get to dig down into your scripture that we would better learn your heart for people, that we would better identify with your work in our lives, and that ultimately, Lord, we would stop adding things to the gospel. We would stop trying to play you, that ultimately, Lord, we could be agents of change on your behalf because you have changed us. And Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 15. We're going to pick up in verse 1, kind of. It's been a while since we've been in the book of Acts, so I, we need to rewind just a little bit, a few verses. We're going to go back to 1424 because I think that's going to better set the scene for what we're getting into. Because as you see, 15.1 begins with a conjunction, and if you're a nerd like me, you understand that that means that we have to go up and so that we understand what he's contrasting from. So verse 24, Paul and Barnabas passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. Trust me, I didn't do this just so I could pronounce these names. So they came to Pamphylia, and they, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how they had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So we see this picture of Paul and Barnabas are setting down roots. They're getting established in one area, Antioch, namely. Sharing what the works of God, what he's done. And now they're helping to develop, encourage, and equip the disciples there. Now verse 15.1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So I want us to understand, first and foremost, Paul and Barnabas have a thriving ministry among the Gentiles. <coughs> and frequently what we see in the book of Acts is when the church in Jerusalem hears of another work going on, they send the apostles, they send somebody appointed by them to that area to affirm them in their faith, encourage them and equip them to live out the gospel to better be agents of change and more effective witnesses in that community. 
That is not what we're seeing here. In Acts 15.1, we're seeing that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers something contrary to what Paul and Barnabas are teaching or have been teaching. And so what we need to understand is that conflict happens. And so the first scene we're going to be looking at is what we're calling the conflict. Very creative with my naming. You see how I did that? So, in the conflict, we have these people coming from Judea, which is higher in elevation, going down to Antioch and teaching this teaching, saying that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. These two words are very intentional, I think. Dissension means that there's division. And so, you can have debate without having division. You can debate with somebody to better flesh out what, they, what their perspective is versus what your perspective is. And that's a lot more healthy than trying to straw man or build your own idea of what their perception is. So you can have a debate but not be divided. This happens all the time in marriage. Am I right? Only me. All right. My wife is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Why am I the only one who... Okay, anyway, so um, beyond that, so they have, but they have division. So what Paul and Barnabas have done... Barnabas, the son of encouragement, they have not done this like, oh, well, I can, I appreciate your perspective, but I really think that we don't need to circumcise them and put them under the law of Moses. It says no small dissension and debate. So Paul and Barnabas immediately say, you're not with us. You're not part of the Christian camp. That's not, that's not what Christ taught. That's not what we believe. You actually see Paul mentions this in the book of Galatians chapter 2. Um, he talks about how some, some guys snuck in to try and make them slaves to these old ways. And in verse 5, he says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Even for a moment. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So this is in Paul and Barnabas's estimation, and I think they're correct, as you'll see. This is a matter of salvation. This is a primary issue. This is something that, even though conflict will happen, this is not something we take lightly. We must stand strong in the gospel. And how do you stand strong in the gospel? You have to, one, first know and understand and appreciate the gospel for what it is. Because if you don't know the gospel, if you don't understand the gospel, and if you don't appreciate the gospel, you will not fight for and stand strong in the gospel. And so Paul and Barnabas immediately make a division, say, you're not with us. And they have this huge debate with them, and it's not, it's not going anywhere. These people from Judea deeply believe that you have to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And so what happens is it goes to the church leadership here in Antioch, and, and Paul and Barnabas are appointed with others to go up to the home church, to go up to where it all started, to go up to the apostles and the elders of the church, capital C, and have it out about this question. Then in verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And so what we're seeing here is, as they make the journey down to Jerusalem geographically, up um, well, I guess, whatever. They're going up in elevation, down, you, you get it. Um, it's, I'm feeling it. Uh, not talking about the spirit while well, I'm feeling it. Whatever. So, um, this isn't being recorded, right? Okay, thank you. <laughs> oh, brother. Uh, Got to get it together. Pull it together. 
So what they're doing is they're going down to Jerusalem to have this out. And as they're going, they're almost like doing a dress rehearsal, if you will. Imagine they're practicing what they're going to say to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem as they're going through these cities. And it's very distinctive. Luke makes sure to note that it brought great joy to all the brothers. So all of the brothers, the members of the church, these Christians, as they're hearing the report from Paul and Barnabas and the other people who are going along with them, hearing what God is doing among the nations, hearing how God is moving among the Gentiles, it's bringing them great joy. They're being overjoyed. (coughs) And then verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so again we see this deep-seated identity of these people who belonged to the Pharisees, as so did Paul at one point, saying, no, 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 it is necessary. They cannot be saved unless they are circumcised and told to keep the law of Moses. And so even in Jerusalem, there's this faction of people who still believe that it's necessary to give your life to Christ, accept him as your Lord and Savior, but then also you have to maintain these ethic, this, this ethic of the Jews, this, this law, you have to remain in obedience to the whole of it. And so this clearly is an issue that has to be addressed. Is this what Christ taught? Is this what the church should be saying? Is this our identity? And so now we move into the council. We, we see in verse 6 that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So they call a council. They bring everyone together, get the band back together, all hang out. And it says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So what we see here in verse 7 is everybody gets together, and now they're having much debate. And in this fashion, it's not like what you would see in the Congress of today where one guy gets up to the microphone and he's given the floor, and so then he yells at the opposing party because that's what he was elected to do, and he needs to get reelected, so he's got to be angry, and he's yelling, and then he yields the floor. And then someone from the opposing party gets up in their microphone, and they yell back just as vociferously as he was because that's what they were elected to do, and they need to be reelected. And so they go back, and then they yield the floor. And then some dude with a hammer is hammering away doing something because he's in charge. This is more like parliament where everybody's just slinging things. And so imagine walking into a place where everybody is in argument, everybody is yelling at each other, and there's just tons of noise. And it's it's weird because we see Peter now. Peter's been sitting there watching the debate, and finally, after much debate, Peter stands up, and he says to them, brothers. So first off, he's very familial in this. He's not saying, hey, fools, listen to me. Or he's not saying, hey, if you remember... I'm the rock here, so y'all need to be quiet or we're going to start throwing stones, right? He stands up and he says, Brothers, you know that in the early days of the church, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter stands up and in this posture of humility explains that and reminds everybody, hey, God made the choice that by my mouth he's reminding them of Cornelius in Acts chapter 9, that the, word, that the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither your fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So what I want us to understand in this council is that disagreements are okay and expected, right? Wherever two or more are gathered, there are at least three opinions, yeah? So disagreements are okay and expected. We can understand that you have a different worldview than I do, and so on some issues there are going to be disagreement. We can walk hand in hand without seeing eye to eye. And so there's this aspect of understanding that this is going to happen. And so because of this disagreement, they come into this room, they have to flesh this out, and there's much debate. And then Peter stands up, and he gives this beautiful speech. We should also point out, this is the last time we see Peter in the book of Acts. So this is like Peter's swan song, if you will. This is the last bit you're going to see or hear from him. And how fitting it is that Peter would stand up and in humility encourage unity in the church and acceptance of these people. And so he says one thing, you know, hey, look, I was the, it was my mouth that, that opened this. It was by me that God would start to bring the Gentiles in. And God, who knows the heart, we, we know bore witness because he gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave us the Holy Spirit. The signs and wonders that happened with us happened just as strongly and powerfully with them. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And then he asks this question in, in verse 10 that I think is really poignant. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither your fathers nor we have been able to bear? So he asks this question about why are we trying to play God? Why would we put him to the test? Why would we stand in the place of God and say, look, unless you do this, you won't be saved? When God never said that to the church. Why would we try and stand in his place? Basically, what Peter is saying is don't burden the broken. Don't let your heritage and your past be a snare to the person coming to be saved any more than their heritage or their past is. And so don't burden these people. Why would we try and put this yoke on their neck? Because even our fathers and we haven't been able to bear this. So why would we try and inflict this on others? And Paul actually speaks to this in Galatians. I'll I'll put the 13th verse up here from Galatians chapter 3. When he talks about what it means to be cursed. And it's hard to flip pages with the remote in your hand. But I did it. (laughs) <laughs> so in verse, starting in verse 10, and this is kind of the highlighted verse, Paul is saying to the Galatians, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Speaking of the law, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so what Peter is highlighting here is that 
The only way to salvation is in faith, by faith alone, in Christ alone, in the grace of God alone. It's not by work. The whole point of Christ was because we couldn't keep the law. The whole point of the blood being shed was because the sacrifice was necessary because we broke the law. So why are we going to try and put this impossibility on them that we ourselves haven't even been able to keep? And then he flips it um, here in verse 11. So he talks of that and then he says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And so what we're seeing here is, is Peter saying, look, we believe that we'll be saved by grace, just like them. So he's hitting again. He's saying, he flips and says, look, we're going to be saved by grace, just like they're going to be saved by grace. We need this grace just as much as they need this grace. And then in verse 12, all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So the assembly at this point, after much debate going back and forth, the hall is loud. Peter stands up, says what he says. Everybody falls silent. And at that moment, Paul and Barnabas stand up, and they present their case. What they've said to these other churches on the way, what they experienced in Antioch, now they put before the council. And then in verse 13, it says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. So now James comes on the scene. Now who is James and why does he matter? James is not James, the brother of John. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And James is considered at this point now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So he is the head of the church, the head of the founding church. He is the one with the most authority in the church. He is the one that could issue a decree and silence this. James is also what I would call like the Jew of Jews in so much as he for himself was fine with legalism. So he was the most obedient to the law of Moses as anyone else, but he for himself did not wish that on anyone else. Does that make sense? There's, um, there's uh, a couple, well, I think right on the edge of the, the apostles, the early church fathers, there's a historian called Hegesepius, great name, name your kid that, um, and he writes like an account of James. And he talks about how James' knees were like the knees of a camel because he spent so much time in prayer. So this is a guy who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He has the authority to make a decree, and he has the, the ability to, to speak from experience. Because if anybody has kept any of the law, James has kept the most of it. Does that make sense? And so now James is on the scene. James is speaking. And so this is kind of seen by all in the assembly as this could be the wrapping up or the redirecting of this conversation. So James speaks. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And so what we see here is, is um, I'm going to say this properly, James, the Jew of Jews, is now highlighting, does, has anybody seen the name Simeon yet? in this text. Good, so you didn't read ahead. So, when James says Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, what he's doing is giving the Jewish rendering of Simon, Peter's name, Peter's Jewish name. So instead of calling him Peter, which is Greek, he's calling him Simeon, which is highlighting Peter's Jewish heritage and thus saying, Peter, Simeon, with the same heritage, same background, same understanding of the law as us, 
has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So James is bringing Peter even more deeply into the fold, giving him even more esteem and authority in this. And he says this, And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so first and foremost, we need to understand, just as James highlights here, that experience without Scripture is empty. (coughs) James is saying here, hey, this is great. Look, Peter has told us what we've seen. We, what we have experienced, he's reminded of us of this. But just as these experiences and these life anecdotes hang here, <coughs> what does the text say? Let's weigh this against the Bible. Let's weigh this against Scripture. So this is cool that this experience has occurred, but what does the Scripture say about this? And James here is saying, we know that the prophets, the books of old, the Bible, the Scripture says that this is going to happen. And then he quotes Amos, Amos. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So what we see here is that James, um, he quotes the book of Amos to to point and highlight, guys, even our scripture says that this is going to happen. Now this is interesting to me, and I'm going to dig down for about 20 minutes on this, because I got time. It's fine, whatever. Um... Because James, if you look at Amos in the Old Testament, um, this is Amos 9, it doesn't say that. (gasps) What? Yeah, so James here doesn't quote the Hebrew Old Testament. James is actually quoting the Septuagint. Oh, because we all know what the Septuagint is, right? Good, thank you for being honest. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. What? So the Jew of Jews quotes the Old Testament, but he doesn't even quote the Hebrew Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament. He quotes the Septuagint Old Testament. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Are we, are we feeling it yet? There's this kind of maybe a weird tension, a textual criticism maybe occurring here. Tim, are you that liberal? Are you crazy? Do we need to depose you? Why are we sending this guy again? Um, but what we're getting at here is um, there, there are multiple theories as to why he does this. And it's interesting, too, in my mind, that he even quotes Amos in the first place. Because he could have quoted Hosea 3. He could have quoted Jeremiah 12. He could have quoted Isaiah 45 but he chose Amos. And he chose to do it in the Septuagint. And so it's interesting because some people think, uh, well, it, it better fits his argument. The translation of the Septuagint um, translates Edom, Edom as Adam, and so it better fits for the word like mankind, better fits his, his argument. Or some people also think that because Luke is writing this to Theophilus, a Greek, knowing his audience is Greek, he would more than likely quote the Septuagint because his audience would be more familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, than the Hebrew Old Testament. It's neither of those. I don't think it's either. I think what James is doing is very intentional. James, the Jew of Jews, who could have easily quoted the Hebrew Old Testament, pulls from Amos because of this theme through Amos of um, there is no national 
laying hold of salvation, meaning that it doesn't matter if you're Israel or who you are, God is God. Does that make sense? And so you don't have this, this um, your nationalism is not an identity of Christianity, just as here your, your Israeliness is not solely and necessarily an identity of being saved. Does that make sense? So he's quoting Amos. He's using the Septuagint, I think, in this way to prove this point. He quotes the Septuagint because he's highlighting to this group in this council that God likes to save people. And so he quotes the Septuagint to even more and further highlight the fact that God has been at work since old to reach the nations. And so when he quotes the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew Old Testament, he's highlighting even more this, this nationalistic, this ethnical diversity in God's work among the nations. Because you can see all the way from, from Genesis chapter 3 that God has been re- responding to his people in grace and has had a plan to redeem and save the nations since then. And so then he quotes a Greek translation of a Hebrew passage that highlights in verse 17 here, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Everyone in his original audience would have immediately recognized that one, he was quoting the Septuagint, and two, that he was saying mankind instead of Edom because that's what it represented. Also in this text, people view this as messianic, meaning that the, the, at this time in history, when it talks about the tent of David rebuilding it that has fallen, we're seeing the fallenness when Christ died on the cross being rebuilt in his victory over death and, and sin so that mankind, the nations, may come to him. Does that make sense? And so there are multiple reasons why James would, would quote this and multiple reasons why he would use the Greek translation, because now he's taken all of the wind out of the sails of the people belonging to the Pharisees who would try and say, no, they need to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised. So now at this point, those who would be arguing that, that perspective, that side of this debate, have nothing left. The Jew of Jews just quoted this, the Greek translation of the Old Testament to prove a point in forcing the life experience of early leadership in the church, saying that God likes to save people. Are you tracking with me? That's cool. I mean, that's, if you're going to win an argument, do it that way. That's fantastic. But James doesn't then just like, boom, and beat them down. James actually, here in verse 19, gives a compromise. So James doesn't go antinomial, saying that there should be no law, just let them live however they want to live and do their thing. Rather, James comes to a compromise. In verse 19, he says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so what we're understanding is James here in 19 could have said, therefore it's my decree and just cleaned everything. But he's saying it's my judgment. I'm reasoning in this that this is how we should move forward. Ultimately, what James is doing is he's enforcing and he's really saying unity is at the heart of the gospel. So this is how we should move forward. We shouldn't try and trouble them or enslave them to our heritage or our past or make them try and be legalists and follow some sort of rules. But at the same time, we should make them aware and keep ourselves from being offended and distracted from Christ himself 
Let's be united. So he says, let's give them these four rules. Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, what's been strangled, and from blood. And so what we see here is James actually gives them a few ceremonial laws and then one moral law. And why that matters is because ceremonial means it's a temporary law that should be followed and obeyed for a time until maturity is achieved and then it's no longer necessary. But then there's one moral law, which means it holds. No matter how mature in Christianity you think you are, this is a law that does not, that does not fall away. And so to abstain from things sacrificed to idols, things strangled, and from blood, these are what we call ceremonial laws. And you see in um, 1 Corinthians and Romans as well that after a certain point, this is no longer a hindrance to your faith and your relationship with God and others. And so these are no longer necessarily something that you have to abide by. If it doesn't impede your ability to live as a Christian life, by all means, buy the discounted meat from the market that was sacrificed to an idol. That's fine. Because you understand that there's no, there's no demon or there's no spirit, there's no God in that. And so you can eat the meat because no other, there's no other God except for our God in Jesus Christ. And so that's fine. You can eat that. But if you doing that is going to cause someone else to fall away from the faith or then go to temple to offer a sacrifice and all this kind of stuff, don't do it. So these are what we would call ceremonial laws. And then the kosher, bleeding, the actually don't kill something and then just eat it, bleed it so that all that stuff gets out. Um, this is ceremonial. It's also healthy. Like, so that's probably not something that would be difficult for people to adhere to. And then strangled as well. That's taken to life. And, and so abstain from that because these are offensive to Jews. And then sexual immorality is what would be called a moral law, meaning that no matter how mature you get in faith, that's something you do not do. You do not have sex outside of marriage because marriage was, is intended to display to the world the gospel, God and his bride. And so to have a relation like that so intimate, to bond yourself with something outside of the one you're married to, is to defile and degrade and misrepresent the image of God. So that stays. And to be fair, I think as you grow in your maturity in Christ, that's something that you never think like, well, as long as it doesn't help make somebody else fall away, that's something that you become more fiercely protective of both because of your relationship to God, not wanting to misrepresent that, but also because of your relationship to your spouse. So these are laws that he says, hey, let's do this. So these are laws that the Gentiles would probably be familiar with. And as he says, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him from old, meaning that since the exiles and other times when the Jews would go out, they would have synagogues, they would start these things in other cities. And so there's always an aspect of Jewish culture in all of these lands and so they, they've been exposed to this already in their past. And if they need further explanation, they can always go and get more explanation on these rules. So James is saying, ultimately, that we are to be united as one. And I do not have time, so write this down in your Bible. But this text in Ephesians really hits home why unity is so important in the church. Unity is at the heart of the gospel in so much as unity is the gospel. God uniting us with him again. And then in a way that could no, be no less strongly pictured than what we see in Ephesians 2, unites us to each other. Different backgrounds, different heritages, different perspectives, different worldviews, brought together by God's love for us, our love for him, and thus our love for each other in Christ. So what? What does all this mean? Why does this matter? First and foremost, as James and everyone in this, in this text has been pointing out, 
there's an individual application and then there's a corporate application. The point of the Christian life is to point to Christ. To put any other thing in front of Christ in your life is to play the part of God, is to distract and is to tempt God. Do not put God to the test. So if you're a Christian, your life should do in everything point to Christ. So let them see your good works that they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Can I just tell you, that's hard enough. We don't need to add 600 laws to that. That one's most difficult enough. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But then in a corporate sense, the point of the church is to point to Christ. (laughs) May we as a church do nothing more than strive in the necessary things to point to Christ. And may we as a church do nothing less than strive to do nothing but point to Christ. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, I would want to encourage you, stop saying, I need to get my life right before I give it to Christ. The only way your life is ever going to be made right is when it's reunited with God in Christ. You can't do that on your own. So stop playing God and give your life to him. And if you're a Christian here today, which I see quite a few of you, stop playing God and expecting righteousness from the unsaved. They're sheep without a shepherd. They don't know to not go stray. Introduce them to the good shepherd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are before you humbled by your love. Lord, as your children, we get to be close to you. We get access to you that none other would get. And Lord, it's in that relationship that we're before you now, asking for your grace, asking for your mercy, and asking ultimately for your strength and your vision. Lord, would you give us the strength to see you? Would you give us the mercy to live for you? And would you give us the grace to relate you to others? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us, that you would direct us, and that you would give us the vision to stop making mountains out of molehills and to allow the heart of the issue to be the heart of the issue. Lord, would you guide us, would you direct us that we could grow closer to you and ultimately that we would see nothing is more important than you. It's in your name we pray. You guys could please stand. We're going to go ahead and um, end in a time of worship.